0: morning join me in prayer would you please father your word is light for our path your word is, is food for our soul your word is a sword to be used well and carefully I pray father that as we turn to your word now that You would use it in our lives, illuminate us, strengthen us, help us to appropriate your word in our lives that we may use it well, help us to apply it, that we might be living out your word before others who need to know that a Savior has come for them as well. And so, Father, let your word work in us and through us, with your Spirit's power, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, finish the sentence. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, right? You believe that? You believe that? I I remember uh, learning that little ditty from my parents uh, many, many years ago. I remember teaching it to my kids when they were little, when someone would say something that hurt their feelings. But I wonder if we really believe it. I wonder if it's really true. I think all of us have been wounded by words in in some really significant ways. In a physical sense, yeah, sticks and stones may break my bones. Words can't hurt us physically, but they can do a lot of damage, so much so that I think uh, we, we might be inclined to uh, complete that sentence by saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can do more damage. Sticks and stones uh, can only break bones. Words can do eternal damage. And we're going to see that in this section of 2 Timothy this morning. Take a look once again at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 14 to 19. Look at all of the references in it to words. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And... Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This section here of 2 Timothy is all about words. Verse 14, words that divide. Verse 15, words that instruct. Verse 16, empty words that mislead. Verse 17, words that spread. Verse 18, words that destroy faith. And verse 19, the one word that stands forever. As Isaiah put it in chapter 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Paul begins kind of carrying forth the theme that he started last week with a reminder of our ongoing need for the gospel, just A very few words at the start of verse 14, remind them of these things. Remind them. We need reminders. That word remind is written in a present imperative mood. It it speaks literally of keep on reminding. Keep on reminding them of these things. What things, you may ask? Well, the things Paul has just been talking about in the previous verses He's been talking about the gospel. He's been talking about his willingness to endure hardship to share the gospel. We need the gospel. And we need to be reminded of the gospel. The gospel isn't just for bringing unbelievers to faith in Christ, the gospel is also for bringing believers to maturity in Christ. We need it. We never don't need it. We need to be reminded. Of the heart of our faith, all over and over again. We need reminders so that we will endure, as we looked at last week. Challenging times will come, and without those reminders, we will melt before them. We need reminders so that we can endure. And those reminders come to us in the context of the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters who will spur us on, leaders and teachers who will bring us God's word. We need those reminders. And our growth in the faith will be proportional to the exposure we get to reminders of what really matters. And that's why the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near, we need regular reminders of the gospel that saves us. Jerry Bridges wrote a great little book called The Discipline of Grace. And in that book, he encourages us to remind ourselves of the gospel. He says, preach the gospel to yourself daily. Daily. What he means by that is that we need to continually face up to our own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith and through trust in his shed blood and his righteous life. We recognize that we are fallen sinful creatures and we recognize that we have an ongoing need for the gospel, for the grace and mercy that is ours on a daily basis in Christ. We need to remind ourselves daily that we are saved by his grace and not our effort. And then we can rest in that grace and we can delight in that grace and we can respond to that grace with lives that are yielded to God in gratitude. The gospel is central. The gospel is essential for coming into the Christian life and for living the Christian life. We need to be reminded of the gospel on a regular basis. So Paul begins with a reminder. But there is a problem in this church at Ephesus that Timothy is leading. And that problem has been going on a long time. And like most situations, there's a problem side And there's a solution side to what's going on there. And Paul wants to help Timothy move people from the problem side to the solution side. The problem side we find in verse 14 and then in verses 16 to 18. Take a look with me. Paul says, remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Down to verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. The problem side. The problem side has to do with words. It's all about words. Words have significance and words have consequences. On the problem side are people in the church who aren't reminding people, aren't reminding one another of the gospel and our ongoing need for it but who are focusing on other things. And in doing that, they're hurting the cause of Christ. Paul's already spoken about these people in his first letter. Flip over to chapter 1 of First Timothy. We looked at it a few months ago. 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at verse 18. Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And then flip over to chapter 6 and look at verse 2, the second half of verse 2, on down through verse 5. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. And for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. The problem side is all about words. People who aren't encouraging one another with the gospel, but focusing on other things, and they're still at it. They were at it in 1 Timothy, they're still at it in 2 Timothy. Hymenaeus seems still to be the ringleader. This time he's got a new sidekick. And the problem revolves around their words. And Paul wants Timothy to address the issue, remind them of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Now Paul begins with remind, and he could have used that command to govern the rest of the sentence, right? Remind them of these things and remind them not to quarrel about words. He doesn't. He doesn't. He could have used the word teach. Remind them of these things and teach them not to quarrel about words. He doesn't. He uses a much stronger word. He says, remind them of these things and charge them not to quarrel about words charge them the verb is a stronger one the NIV translates it warn them the New Living says command them charge them uses a really strong command there but then he intensifies it notice what he does here charge them before God not to quarrel about words. He's using some really stern language here. It's a warning, and with good reason. This is serious stuff. This is stuff that can have eternal consequences. James um, does something similar. It was read earlier in the Scripture readings in in chapter 3 of James, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Be careful about your words. Be careful about what you teach. If if you're going to teach, you need to understand that there is a more severe judgment awaiting you. What might that look like? I think... I think Paul might have that stricter judgment in mind when he writes 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We've probably all heard 1 Corinthians chapter 3 describing the things that we build into our lives being tested by fire at the final judgment and us watching some things that we have built with poor building materials get burned up. I think the immediate context suggests Paul is talking about teachers, people who presumed to teach God's word. Uh, In the context, he he begins by talking about those who say, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos, I follow Christ. Who are you going to follow? People were, were following teachers that appealed to them. And Paul says, there's no other foundation that can be laid except Christ. These people are building on that foundation. So they're they're teaching based on the foundation of the gospel, but what they build with and how they build will be subject to fire. That will be subject to the stricter judgment. If you look at the questions for further thought, uh, you'll see some questions pertaining to that. I hope that you'll dig into that this week. I won't go any further with that right now, except to say that, We need to be very careful with our words. Paul says, charge them before God not to quarrel about words. He's talking about word fights. And word fights are kind of like sword fights, but just drop the S. And they can be more dangerous than sword fights because they have eternal consequences. Word fights. Paul says in verse 14 that they do no good. They make no positive contribution to the body of Christ or to the cause of Christ. They do no good. One of the uh, more interesting stories that came out of the era of the uh, Korean War was about a guy named Wallstrom, who was kind of a, a collector and an inventor. And he created something that became known as Wallstrom's Wonder. You may want to Google Wallstrom's Wonders sometime and read up on it. It's interesting. He collected all kinds of spare parts and assembled them. He liked putting things together. And so he built this room full of gadgetry that was all connected, and he could flip a single switch, and, and wheels would begin to turn, first at one end of the room, and then going across the room all the way to the other end of the room. And when the last wheel was turning, lights would begin to come on and to flash, first at one end of the room, and then they'd go to the other end of the room and soon the room was filled with whirring wheels and flashing lights and then sounds would begin to come, horns and bells and buzzers and whistles uh, and, and fill the room with sound and people would come from miles around to see Wallstrom's wonder and somebody finally asked him, what does it do? He said, well, you flip a single switch and, and wheels turn and, and lights flash and sounds come But what does it do? It doesn't do a single positive thing. And Paul says, word fights don't do a positive thing. And in fact, they do harm. They do harm. A good deal of harm. They ruin their hearers, Paul says. He uses an interesting Greek word. It is the word katastrophe. Does that look like an English word that you've seen before? Word fights lead people into catastrophe. Catastrophe. Ever witness a catastrophe? Think about the recent tornadoes in Kentucky. You've seen the pictures of those on the news? It's a disaster. It's a catastrophe. And Paul tells us that catastrophe is in the power of words. He warns us against word fights. He warns us in verse 16 against irreverent babble. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Irreverent babble, the word Irreverent means profane or worldly. In other words, the focus isn't on God. The focus is on the world. And Babel literally means empty words. They're empty. They have no benefit to the hearer. And then he tells us what words like that do. They lead to greater and greater ungodliness. Someone goes so far with this ungodliness and, and the people he's been speaking to think that's normal. And they go further. And people they're speaking to think that's normal, and they go further. And each iteration becomes more and more ungodly. You know, when I consider certain issues, I wonder just how affected by the culture my perspective is. It's like telling a fish You're wet. You know, they don't understand wet because that's all they know. They don't understand dry. You know, we we live in this culture. We live immersed in this culture. And I have to ask myself every now and then, as I look at God's word and try to understand its meaning in our culture, I, I have to ask myself, would I come to the same conclusion if I were coming at this a 100 years ago? Or have I been so conditioned by my culture that I'm just going along with how everybody sees this? We need to check ourselves. And our only unchanging guide is God's word. Verse 17 tells us the word fights the babble. Spread like gangrene. That's, that's a strong thing to say. Gangrene is a terrible medical condition where the only solution is to remove the affected part. The only solution for gangrene is amputation. You've got to remove it. It's that serious. And then he offers a case in point in verse 17. Hymenaeus and Philetus. The basic problem is they have swerved from the truth. They've left the path. They've gone off on their own conjecturing. And in that conjecturing, they say that the resurrection has already happened. What's that mean? Most likely, what we're talking about here is what we call a realized eschatology. And now you've got a couple of big words to throw around and impress your friends this week. When you're talking about something, you can say, well, actually, I think what we're dealing with here is a realized eschatology. That'll impress them. Well, here's the idea. What they're saying is that the resurrection's already happened, that, that what happened to you when you became a believer, when you experienced new birth in Christ, it's all the resurrection you're going to get. It's a spiritual one. There won't be a physical one coming. This, this um, birth to new life spiritually is all there is. That's the idea behind it. We talked about it last week. Paul, though, goes to great lengths in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to show how the resurrection is the very linchpin of the Christian faith. If there is no resurrection. We have no hope that we are to be pitied more than anyone else because we're pursuing something that is a falsehood and we will get nothing in the end. And these men with their word fights and their irreverent babble are saying that the resurrection has already happened. Where did they get that? I'll tell you where they got that. They got it from the culture. They got it from Greek thought. Greek thought uh, at this time was was beginning to develop around the concept of Gnosticism. Gnosticism uh, is this this thought that that has a dualistic worldview that categorizes everything as either spiritual or material. And everything spiritual, they said, is good. And everything material, they said, is evil. So, spiritual good, material evil, my body. Which is it? It's physical. Therefore, it's evil. So what do I do about that? Well, ironically... Two solutions come out of the same thing. One is asceticism. It says, beat that body up. Uh, just, just treat it badly. Punish it. It's evil. The other one is, is indulgence or, or uh, what, what word did I use? Hedonism. Um, indulge this body because even though it's evil, you're stuck with it until you are set free from it at death. And then you can join the pure spiritual world. But you're stuck with this body until then, so you may as well just live it to the full. Indulge it fully. Grab for all the gusto you can get. That's the basic idea behind Gnosticism. And it was the thing people, in the time Paul wrote to Timothy here, liked to talk about It was the latest. It was this cool thing that we can discuss. It was fashionable. It was trendy. It came from the culture, not from the word of God. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is teaching in Athens. He's wanting to share the gospel of Christ in Athens, the the center of of Greek thought, and Paul, because he's teaching something new and different that they hadn't heard before, gets himself invited to a meeting of the Areopagus, the cultural elite who discussed the latest ideas, all these cool things. They hadn't heard what Paul had said before, and so they said, why don't you come? We'd love to hear this, and Luke records this by way of explanation in Acts chapter 17, verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They just loved to hear something new. The latest. That's the culture. Let's hear the latest ideas. Let's debate them. It'll be fun. Hi. Yeah, that way. So they, they love to debate what was new. And the Greek text is really fascinating at this point because literally the word is not just new, but newer. Newer. They love to hear what was newer. Oh, that thing we talked about yesterday, that was so yesterday. Let's talk about what's newer. It'll be fun. And their conjecture, their sport, their fun is upsetting, Paul says, the faith of some. Upsetting. And we use that word pretty loosely, right? Uh, Someone's feelings got hurt. They're they're upset. They're upset. Uh, Think not in terms of someone whose feelings are hurt. Um, The word upset here doesn't suggest someone who's just getting upset emotionally. It is upset in the sense of turning over a table. It it is the same word that John uses in chapter two of his gospel, verse 15, where Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple. Throw them over. That's what's happening, Paul says, to people's faith because of the sport of these people who like to debate what was newer. Imagine preparing a a really wonderful meal. You've invited someone over. You've set out your fine china. You have just prepared this so well. And this person comes that you've invited and says, I've got this great new trick I just got to show you. I I saw it. I saw it on a cartoon. Okay. I'm going to take this tablecloth and I'm going to whisk it out from underneath your meal and your china and your silver and your goblets and leave it all standing. Ready? Watch. And he yanks on that thing and all that you have prepared goes flying. That's the idea. They're upsetting the faith of some. I would roughly translate it, they are blowing up the faith of some. They're having a great time. They're showing how smart they are and people's faith is being devastated. That's what happens when you argue over words. One commentator put it this way, in the end, disputing about words seeks not the victory of truth, but the victory of the speaker. And people's lives were being ruined. Their faith blown up because people wanted their own personal victory rather than the victory of the truth. Hymenaeus and friends are having a great time discussing and debating the latest. But real people are getting hurt with eternal consequences. No wonder Paul tells Timothy to charge them before God to knock it off. That's the problem side. People who were using words that bring eternal consequences. And Paul wants Timothy to get them over to the solution side. And we see the solution side in verses 15 and 19. Verse 15: Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Down to verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Solution side has has two things. The approved worker and the foundation stone. The approved worker shows up in verse 15. The foundation stone in verse 19 The approved worker makes God's word central. Paul gives some characteristics of the approved worker. He works hard. There's the first one. Do your best, he says. Work hard at this. Um, The uh, Christian Standard Bible says, be diligent. The New Living says, work hard. ESV, do your best. The word, the Greek word, means to do something with intense effort and motivation. Does that describe your approach to the word of God? Do you take great effort, great motivation to get God's word into you and to get it to show up in your life? The approved worker works hard, and he does it for an audience of one. Do your best To present yourself to God. Uh, This approved worker works hard for an audience of one. God's approval is all that matters. He works hard for an audience of one with a goal to be approved by him. The word implies being tested and proven. Provenness comes through trial, and you come through the trial unashamed. That's the goal. To be unashamed. Unashamed. Verses uh, 8, 12, and 16 of, of chapter 1, Paul speaks of his own situation where he's suffering and unashamed. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Paul is in prison. Imprisonment is intended to be shameful, particularly in that day. Shameful. And yet, Paul knows he's in prison for the gospel, and so he is unashamed. Despite hardships, despite times when people oppose you, you come through those times as gold. You come through unashamed. The approved worker works hard for an audience of one with a goal of being approved by God and being unashamed, and he does it rightly handling the word of truth. Literally, cut straight. Rightly handle. Cut straight. Know where to open this book. Understand how the parts relate to one another. Don't take pieces out of context. Know how to use this living, active, double-edged sword. Cut straight with it. That should be the desire of all of us, to be that approved worker. We all want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. The approved worker cherishes the word of God and knows how to use it the other thing on the solution side is the foundation stone in verse 19 but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal the Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity the foundation stone. In, in contrast to those whose faith is becoming upset, those whose faith is being blown up, the foundation stone is solid. It's set. It's unmoving. Paul says, count on this. God has given us a firm foundation to build on. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. It's back to the gospel again. We have the written word and we have the living word, and they are unshakable. This foundation stone, then, is inscribed with two things, both of which come from the word of God. The first one, It's inscribed with this saying, the Lord knows those who are his. I would shorten it, condense it to three words saying, God will judge. God will judge. Because what Paul is doing here is he is quoting a line from the story in Numbers chapter 16 of Korah's rebellion. Familiar with Korah's rebellion? Let me nutshell it for you. Korah Dathan, Abiram, and 250 leaders of the people of Israel confront Moses and Aaron, and they challenge their leadership. And this is what they say Numbers 16, verse 3 You have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly? Of the Lord. You hear what's going on here? We're not going to recognize you as our leaders. Everybody's a leader. Everybody's holy. Everybody's got a part in this. They wouldn't recognize the legitimacy of God's appointed leaders. And Moses responded to that by falling on his face before God. It's a good response. And then he set up a challenge for the next day. The next day, these men were to bring their censers with incense, and the Lord would show who belongs to him. Okay, you're kind of calling yourselves all priests. Bring your censers and your incense, and we'll let the Lord decide. And the next day, when they did that, the ground opened up, and Korah and Dathan and Abiram and their families were swallowed up. And then fire came down from heaven and consumed the 250 liters. And all that was left were those censers. And Moses had them beaten into a cover for the altar, a reminder that God will judge. And Paul brings that story to mind here to remind the people that there will be accountability for people like Hymenaeus and Philetus. They won't be allowed to spread discord indefinitely. God will judge. Then, the other thing inscribed on that foundation stone is this, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. I think we could shrink that to three words to say turn from iniquity. God will judge and turn from iniquity. Picture those engraved on a stone the source of, of this part is Isaiah 52, 11, where it says, Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. The first inscription on the foundation stone had to do with what God will do. God will judge. The second one speaks of what we need to do. Turn from iniquity. It recognizes uh, that we might look at the, the warning of the first part of verse 19 where it says God will judge and say, yeah, get him, God, get him. The second part warns us to look at ourselves and make sure we're not falling into iniquity in the use of our mouths ourselves. When we hear a rebuke from the word of God, our first response might be to start stockpiling our weapons of self-righteousness to use against somebody else and show them how the word applies to them. When our first response needs to be humble introspection, asking God to search our hearts. We apply God's word first to our lives. We get the log first out of our own eye, We humbly respond rather than proudly resist. James tells us to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. NIV says this, humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Not talking about applying it to someone else, talking about applying it first to ourselves what's our response when God's word nails us? When it points out something in our life that's out of kilter, do we humbly accept it or do we stiffen and resist? We need the gospel. We need the gospel daily. We need the gospel not to just bring us into the Christian life, but to help us live the Christian life We need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. It's central. we live in an age not unlike the age in which Paul wrote to Timothy. And we ourselves are tempted to swerve from the gospel into word fights and irreverent babble. And we need to see that those things hurt real people. And those things carry eternal consequences. And those things detract us from the mission God has given us to reach people with the gospel of Christ that can save them. The solution is the word of God. Not words, but the word. Get it into your life. Know it. Stick with it. Cherish it. Let it be your unchanging, unfailing guide. You'll find some questions for further thought in your program. I hope you'll make use of those this week. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, this word of yours is convicting and challenging And I pray, Father, that we would humbly accept this word ourselves and not apply its conviction and its challenge to anybody else before we've applied it to ourselves. I pray that our response to it would be humble and that through that humble response, you would change us, make us more like Jesus, Help us to serve you with a whole heart in his name. Amen.